Embracing the Beast, Part 3, The World of Sleeping Beauty. In the last two chapters, we started an exploration of the relationship between body and mind. First, we used the fairy tale of the Frog Prince to illustrate the problems that arise when denial of messages from the body causes a disruption in the integrity of body consciousness. And then we looked at the worlds of body and mind, showing what is involved in their makeup that might contribute to the breakdown in relationship that we call tension and pain. Now let us leave the dilemma of the frog body and the princess mind for the moment and take a closer look at the process through which consciousness of body injury is denied. Let me give you an example, a revealing and portrayal of one individual's response to injury and pain as given by Jean Achterberg in her book, Imagery and Healing. I'm reminded, she writes, of a young man who was working on a scaffold when a crane swung into it, sending him hurtling down two stories. His arm was nearly severed. He broke both of his knees, sustained multiple fractures, and injured his back. There is no logical reason for him to have survived, except that he's mentally as tough as nails. When I asked him how he did it, he said he knew he had to keep his eyes open, because if he became unconscious, he'd never wake up again. He remained awake throughout the whole ordeal, watching the blood and white stuff flow out of his arm, acutely aware of the pain and never going into shock. He focused on his breathing, holding his breath as long as he could and then breathing shallowly. And a fellow construction worker helped save his arm by applying pressure in the right places. And after hours and hours of careful surgery, it was successfully reattached and has now become functional. He still fights general anesthesia and every other situation where he might lose the self-control that pulled him through. He holds his breath and steals himself for his next life crisis. But he's alive. What Achterberg has described so well here is the damage control that we all do whenever faced with injury to our being. It doesn't even take conscious focus. When faced with such a threat, we will all instinctively brace with our breathing and fight the overwhelming of our consciousness from body sensation. The blind determination of Achterberg's construction worker shows the response of mental control in the face of injury that is an essential part of our survival mechanism. Bracing in the face of injury leaves us steeled against the injury and keeps us alive. So what is the problem with controlling body sensation in the face of pain? Nothing in itself. The world of the body has a need for balance, and if we feel overwhelmed by body sensations such as pain, the mind will try to cut down on the input so that we are left with some ability to reason, some capacity for self-awareness and self-control, but at a cost. We also lose some of our ability to feel whether each new experience that follows is a safe one or not. Like a stray dog that growls at a friendly hand, we are left blinded to the possibility of redemption from our pain. And in body work, it is the most traumatized client who will hold themselves awkwardly above the supportive surface of the massage table and brace against the hand of the therapist. In the same way that the oyster learns to cope with the gradually increasing demands of the growing pearl by giving up some of its living space, 
we are left using more and more of our energy to cope with unintegrated experience, still staving off the invasion of injury signals to our body consciousness. In the Grimm Brothers story of the Sleeping Beauty, we are given a powerful picture of the cost of control in the face of injury. In this case, the object of denial is an evil-tempered wise woman or witch who is not invited to the feast given in honor of the queen and king's baby daughter. She arrives in any case, but in a fury, and just before the last good wise woman is about to give her gift, proclaims, in the fifteenth year of her age, the princess shall prick herself on a spindle and fall down dead. And the court is filled with horror. The king, not wanting his daughter to fall prey to the wicked woman's curse, burns all the spinning wheels in the kingdom. He hopes he can remove the danger by banning all awareness of the instrument of her promised death. Although he has been assured by the last wise woman's prophecy that in the end all will turn out well, he wants to save them, castle and court, from the pain of the princess's fate, and yet in vain. Time goes on. The princess grows up to be beautiful in a land that does not spin. And because of her lack of experience, she does not recognize the spinning wheel when she finally comes across one. Because the king has ordained that it should not be spoken of, she has not been told of the deadly prediction. And she reaches out to touch the beautiful spinning wheel, pricks her hand, and falls asleep. So in the end, despite all the king's precautions, the wicked witch, unacknowledged and unrelated to, has her way at last. Here, retribution for our denial of the frog world finally catches up with us. By forgetting that which is unpleasant in life, we leave ourselves vulnerable to its effects as they work unconsciously, casting their spell on our lives. In one of the most compelling passages in the whole book of Grimm's fairy tales, we are told, And this sleep fell upon the whole castle. The king and queen, who had returned and were in the great hall, fell fast asleep, and with them the whole court. The horses in their stalls, the dogs in the yard, the pigeons on the roof, the flies on the wall, the very fire that flickered on the hearth became still and slept like the rest, and the meat on the spit ceased roasting, and the cook who was going to pull the scullion's hair for some mistake he had made let him go and went to sleep. The wind ceased, and not a leaf fell from the trees about the castle. And so it is, and with as much completeness and finality, that the life of our bodies, the movements and sensations that are its expression, can be quietly removed from our consciousness and lost into the world of the unconscious. But there is more. The ability of bracing not only serves as a powerful agent in putting our body awareness away from responsiveness to life, it also builds a protection both physical and psychological around the place of injury, making sure that the spell will not be disturbed. Then round about that place, continued the brothers Grimm, there grew a hedge of thorns thicker every year until at last the whole castle was hidden from view and nothing of it could be seen but the vein on the roof. It's a powerful picture of the bracing that we too do around an injury 
The hedge around the castle shows its twofold purpose. Besides bracing from the effects of further injury to our being, we control the movement of the injury into our lives. In the same way that we would respond to an oil spill or a nuclear disaster, we contain the area of trauma and attempt to control the spread of its influence on the rest of our body consciousness. And this effectively controls much of our experience of body trauma, but at a price. And although muffled, the voice of the trauma and its effect on the body still refuse to go away. As our connection with the sensate life of our body fades, a bracing arises that protects but is also a visible indicator that this part of the body has the braceness of a cast and the unresponsiveness and brittleness of a branch that has lost its sap. The form is still there, but the responsiveness and inner strength that comes with life have gone. The brittleness of the bracing makes these parts of the body most vulnerable to re-injury and most resistant to any deep level of response to body therapy. This bracing to form a protective circle around the place of injury requires a great amount of energy. Moshe Feldenkrais, the originator of Feldenkrais method, body therapy describes it like this. In every action in which a degree of difficulty is anticipated, the body is drawn together as a protective device against this difficulty. It is precisely this reinforcement of the body that requires the unnecessary effort and prevents the body from organizing itself correctly for action. Further, this self-protection and superfluous effort in action are an expression of the individual's lack of self-confidence. As soon as a person is conscious that she is placing a strain on the powers, it makes a greater effort of the will to reinforce the body for action, but in fact is forcing superfluous effort on oneself. The act resulting from this attempt to reinforce the body will never be either graceful or stimulating and will arouse no wish in the individual to repeat it. Here again, in other words, we find ourselves trapped in the web of body control. As effective as bracing is in responding to stressful experiences, the containing and controlling abilities of bracing leave the traumatized area locked out of any sense of immediate connectiveness with post-trauma experience, including the need of the body and the mind to heal. Sensory awareness of the body is lessened, and without this information, the worlds of the mind and the body begin to drift apart, with the mind only able to approximate the correct forms of body movement needed. And in the face of a lack of information from the body, the mind moves faster, trying to compensate for the lack of body information by creating scenarios of how to respond to life. The mind becomes prone to misjudging new situations and creating fantasies built more out of its heightened defense awareness than the reality of the situation. And it becomes more difficult for the racing mind to sleep and let go of control, unable as it is to sense the safety of the environment it would be leaving consciousness of. We become disconnected from a sense of immediacy of life and any sense of aliveness in the body. But, as Feldenkrais points out, wherever we deny that awareness, we become locked out of body feeling and the sense of aliveness and energy that it brings us. And, as Feldenkrais points out, 
Wherever we deny that awareness, we become locked out of body feeling and the sense of aliveness and energy that it brings us, left able to only mechanically manipulate the body by will, forcing our bodies onwards through the motions of living. Like a runner blindly pushing his way to reach the end of a marathon, we submerse the calls of body pain so that we can go forward. Aside from the ways in which bracing affects our ability to feel and initiate movement, there is also an influence on the amount of conflict that is involved in movement. As long as imaginal commands are unconsciously controlling how we move our bodies, every movement will find that particular part of the body trying to listen to at least two messages at once. Those of you who've had a frozen shoulder will know that as much as you might want to raise your arm, it seems as if there is another force in resistance, making the movement impossible and painful to attempt. Every movement that we do in an area that is still under the control of old messages will have a similar experience to it. We will be constantly fighting against restrictive motion. The accumulated effect of this conflict of messages results in every movement being harder to do, using up more energy, and leaving us with a feeling of limbs that are heavy and muscles that feel strained. Although we generally accustom ourselves to this slow closing in of the body's expressive freedom, a measure of the success of most body therapies will be a renewed sense of lightness and freedom of movement in the body. Again, the experience of being stuck in our own web shows itself. At this point, all attempts at change will be tainted with the still prevailing perspective of damage control. And with consciousness outside the protective hedge of control, we can't feel in touch with the place of injury. So every attempt that is made to effect change will move from the perspective of external control, force without feeling, deprived of feeling in touch with, and the body softening that feeling brings. As our ability to feel in the traumatized area is cut down, it becomes difficult for any new imaginal messages to take effect. This means that our mind's ability to define and direct a movement becomes hazy and clumsy, and as Feldenkrais points out, forced. As well, the information that we need to form our sense of body image is cut down. In bodywork, this will show up when people will often say that they don't have a sense of parts of their body, that they don't have legs, or that an arm feels thinner or shorter than its physical reality. To the degree that we pull away from feeling the trauma, there is a tendency for the last imaginal message, most often the message to brace to stay in control of the muscles. Muscle tension or bracing becomes the physical expression of this stopping of body experience. And as we continue to distance ourselves from the pain that we feel, we push away the whole experience of body connection, losing contact even with the imaginal directive of bracing so that it sinks more and more into the unconscious. A gap between what we consciously envision of our body and its nature and the actual responsiveness of the body occurs. Not only are we left with gaps in body awareness, 
We also have tension that we can't seem to let go of, shoulders that will not relax, continual reoccurrence of pain in legs or lower back from muscles that will not release, and unhealthy postures that seem determined to have their way. The body, as Feldenkrais tells us, will not respond to our disenfranchised attempts to fix it. The messages we are sending to it can no longer adequately reach the world of the traumatized body, and as the body feels segmented, the language of separation becomes stronger. It is then that people will often make statements to their therapists such as, if only you could take off that neck and replace it with one that works better. Feeling separated and out of touch with the area, our bodies are caught in a frozen reaction to trauma still fighting a battle whose purpose is long past. The body has been truly abandoned. With body and mind asunder before the experience of pain, where do we turn for help? And where do those of us who are therapists turn as we attempt to help heal this rift that grows within human consciousness? For this question is not just one of individual and society bearing our private wounds. With all our wondrous ability to manipulate nature, this is a culture that is sadly and dangerously out of touch with nature itself. Learning to relate again through the body is not just a lesson for the individual. It becomes a profound lesson in healing the wounds between humankind and the body of life that we are part of. And seen in this way, our relationship with our body becomes a living metaphor for our relationship with life. With this in mind, let us hear once more the thoughts of Moshe Feldenkrais. The limit of ability, says Feldenkrais, must be widened by means of study and understanding rather than by stubborn effort and attempts to protect the body. Now here are words to be remembered when any of us are seduced into the use of force in an attempt to affect change within ourselves. But there is something else being said here that we shouldn't miss, some reference to a different way of relating to the body. It would seem that Feldenkrais is saying that we need not so much to do something to the body, but rather to be a student of the body, to slow the rush of the fix-it perspective of the rational mind and learn to listen instead. After all, with the relationship between body and mind in disarray, it is clear that some new way of relating to the body must be learned. And in part four, we will explore what that new way of relating might be. Hi, I'm Matthew Vandergeesen. Written as an article for Massage Magazine in the early 1990s, Embracing the Beast has sustained some of the most constant interest of any of my published works. Originally intended as information for massage therapists and clients, Embracing the Beast draws upon my experience as a massage practitioner and somatic educator. It explores how we get disconnected from the body, our stuck relationship with discomfort and pain, and the unexpected pathways that can lead to healing. Embracing the Beast provides a foundation for many of the perspectives that inform the Embodiment Project. You can find out more about the Embodiment Project at somatics, 
www.cahill.com. Thank you for listening.